Hello and welcome to a special Saturday edition of Coffee House Shots. I'm Kate Andrews and I'm joined by our editor Fraser Nelson and we're delighted to have with us historian and author Johan Norberg who has just published The Capitalist Manifesto, Why the Global Free Market Will Save the World. Johan, we're very happy to have you with us this evening. If listeners can hear some glasses clinking outside, we have a subscriber-only event tonight down in the boardroom where Johan Fraser and I will be in conversation talking about his book and taking some questions from the audience and of course enjoying and of course enjoying a glass of wine. Uh, Johan, when we last met, I believe it was October 2020, and it was in a Swedish cafe. I was visiting Stockholm, and you very kindly agreed to do a coffee house shots back then. Uh, it was a very strange experience for me because everything was open, nobody was masked up, there was no social distancing. Uh, this is how Sweden was living, but virtually the rest of the world was completely locked down. Now, at the time, you had just published a book called Open, and it was looking at how the openness of countries towards trade, towards ideas, was what made them so successful. Now, when I was reading your new book, The Capitalist Manifesto, I felt like you were peeling back a layer. I felt like you were getting even more fundamental because you were trying to explain why success is important, why growth, GDP are important, why capitalism is so necessary for prosperity. Why did you feel like you had to make the case? Well, you know, I tend to move towards subjects where I feel like uh, people have... Uh, a lot of um, faulty assumptions about how the world works. So when people wanted closed societies and lockdown societies, I wrote about openness. And and now, after the pandemic, people assume that this shows that global supply chains are dangerous, that we need uh, heavy government stimulus and handouts, we need uh, big governments in charge. I had to go back to fundamentals and show that that's... What we've learned, that's what doesn't work. And what works are free markets. Mm. Fraser, we've spoken quite a bit on this podcast uh, and off about this sort of authoritarian era that's been ushered in from the lockdowns. Um, would you agree that now more than ever, some of these fundamental, classically liberal ideas uh, need to be talked about? They do, because they're not intuitive anymore. When I was... Um when I was young. I mean, Johan and I were born of the, in the Cold War, right, when we very much knew why our system was different to that of the Soviet Union. It's difficult to really to grow up, to read the papers, to read politics, and not really work out why the liberal economic system was superior to that of the communist system. You're now getting a younger generation growing up for whom communism is a distant memory and who tends to have a very low opinion of capitalism. When you look at the opinion polls, you can see really quite um, shockingly low support, even for basic things like democracy and free speech. And you also seem to have the idea that capitalism is effectively a racket which allows the rich to get richer and the poor to get poorer. Now, what puzzles me is that when Johan first wrote um, book, his, his book, um, In Defense of Global Capitalism, 20 years ago, it was right at the cusp of the era where it was possible to prove demonstrably that capitalism was making the world fairer, greater, less poverty, etc. And when I read that book, it, was, um, it probably had more um, effect shaping my political opinions than any other book I've read. It was things that I've always suspected, but Johan had a lot of the evidence 
But since then, in the 20 years, there is now just a mountain of evidence in every single possible era. Uh, Johan's been followed by, by Steven Pinker, by Matt Ridley, the rational optimist. There's now a lot of literature explaining why the free and open society is not just better for us in this country, but better for the third world. And yet, juxtaposed to all of this evidence is this growing belief amongst young people that it's simply not true, that it's a racket. So this is the paradox. We, weirdly, um, I say we as in those of us who believe um, that power should lie with the many, but not the few, we're losing the argument. Now, one of the things I'm interested to ask Johan about is that I think sometimes think the word capitalist is part of the problem. The word capitalist basically is a word invented by the enemies of freedom. It suggests an ideology. It's not really, I mean... Um, but nonetheless, you're trying to reclaim the word capitalist, Johan. And because the cap- nobody calls each other capitalist as a compliment, yeah. not unless um, in Ayn Rand's kind of party circles. Yeah, no, you're right. And uh, some of my best friends and some of my intellectual heroes say that we should abandon the world, word and, and talk about something else because it's not really about capital. On the contrary, it's, it's about... Um, the the it it's about markets voluntary exchange and the ability for more people to have a claim to um, growing wealth in societies and and people like uh, Didier McCloskey the economist and historian she claims that we we should abandon the word but her word then is innovism which is uh, it, it's great it's about innovation but it won't stick and our enemies will keep on calling it capitalism and and my uh, my basic take is. If we don't fill that word with meaning, someone else will, <laughs> because they will keep on looking for the Google the word capitalism. What's it about? And then we need someone saying that it's the best thing that has happened to mankind. It's the great destructor of poverty and inequality and injustice that we've ever had. One of the things I think you do brilliantly in the book is you connect the concept of capitalism to just basic freedom, something that is hard to argue with. Uh, the book is full of statistics, really interesting ones. Uh, one that jumped out to me was that uh, an analysis of 26 post-communist countries showed that a 10% increase in economic freedom was associated with a 2.7% faster annual growth, uh, really putting into perspective what growth is and how it lifts people out of poverty and authoritarianism and all the rest of it. Now, the UK is not a post-communist country, not yet. Anyway, but Britain, all of the West, is in desperate need of more economic growth. These are very stagnant times. And, you know, whether you are an advanced economy or a developing country, uh, it does strike me that a lot of people have abandoned this idea of going for growth. And, and speaking of brand names, perhaps growth is the wrong one. For some reason, people just think it's somebody else's growth and it's not really of importance to you. Perhaps we should just call it sort of a improvement, improving your life. You know, if you have a 2% per capita growth rate, uh, you double uh, the size of the economy, of average incomes, a wealth of opportunity in in your country. So whatever you can do to improve that growth rate will mean everything, especially compared to redistribution. We constantly talk about who will get another £100 now on somebody else's uh, expense. And 
it's trivial. It doesn't mean anything compared to getting that growth rate going because then you can afford to to improve society generally. Uh, and it's more than trivial, it's dangerous because it might threaten the incentives for risk-taking, for uh, work, for education and, and so on. So we have to get back to growth agenda and that's, that's part of my mission. One of the things that you mentioned in your book, Johan, is um, a, a Brexit hustings, where somebody shouts out, that's your bloody GDP, not ours. Um, now, I, of course, um, during that campaign, the Remain campaign tried to say, uh, look, uh, Remain, staying in the EU will mean maximising your GDP growth, therefore you should do this. Now, that quote, which you mentioned, that's your GDP, to me, that rings pretty true, because we had managed to get into a system where people felt that the language of prosperity did basically apply disproportionately to graduates, to those in cities, to those who worked in certain sectors, and it didn't really apply to those who'd left school with with, with lower degrees of education, who were involved in manual labour. And I think that was a, a very fitting critique. I wouldn't say of capitalism, but just certainly of the economic model. But I've often found that we're, but the, one of the ways that when I, when I think how I've modified my thinking, and also probably the areas where where I would probably where you probably disagree with me, is that since I since I um, first read your book a couple of decades ago, I have come to be more hesitant about open borders, um, because and and also, I've come to, to work out that globalization was going too far and needed to be dialed back. Um, because that guy who was heckling, that's your GDP, not ours, I think he did have a point. There was, I think, in a nation states, you need, you need to have kind of social cohesion. People need to feel as if they are bound up in it somehow, that if there is growth, then it will lift all boats. And I do think there was a risk that globalization, especially if you've got a whole bunch of guys on welfare and you're substituting them with people um, you're taking in from, from immigration, that is a model which will lift your GDP while leaving certain people isolated. And I think when we look at the, um, you know, the history of capitalism in Britain, I think the Brexit vote was a vote to dial it back and to do it in a way that carried greater democratic consent. So I, I sort of felt chastened, shall we say, that I used to be free borders um, and I, I used to be um, thinking that basically a GDP maximalist, shall we say, I'm less so now, and that's often a topic between Kate and I. We would disagree in this podcast, don't we, Kate? I hope I'm happy that you're here, Johan, to put him to put him right. <laughs> well, you, you know, I I can see where that guy is coming from, and where you're coming from as well, because for a long time, um, globalization and the economic growth agenda has been kind of this technocratic agenda by a couple of people in in suits who've had a plan for everybody else and on how to fix things and how to uh, grow the economy and not really illustrating it, not really um, anchoring it in anything that's related to people's lives. And that's incredibly dangerous. And that's one of the reasons why we're, we're having this backlash right now. And that's a reason why I'm trying to portray the growth agendas. It's not the IMF. It's not the European Union. It's about you and your life. It's about your purchasing power, the ability for any kind of small owner of a grocery store or of a cafe to be able to make your dreams come alive. And that's always reduced whenever someone 
is imposing rules, regulations and taxes, including um, border controls that makes it more difficult to get inputs from various places or workers from places. We, I mean, store shops and businesses are screaming for labor right now. And they need it and we need it as consumers and, and societies to, to be able to grow. Uh, so I, I think we have to defend the basic case, but by showing how it actually works. It's not GDP. It's it's about you. It's actually about your wallets and about your kids, and it's about uh, the future of our societies. When we look at uh, free trade, which is seen as this sort of elitist project, and there's this tendency, not just on the left, but also on the right, to say that, look, it's gone too far with... Uh, with we're getting too much competition from other places. You know, if we abolished all... Uh, international trade would reduce the elites purchasing power by something like 10%. They could probably afford it. But of the poorest 10% of households, we'd reduce it by half, something like that. And we need to talk about capitalism in those terms. It's bottom up. It's not top down. Johan, this week we've had some dismal inflation figures released in the UK. The UK is really starting to look like an outlier. Core inflation, which excludes energy and food, is actually rising. It's above 7% on the year now. Um, And I noticed in your book, when you talk about inflation, you described it as a way of taxing people without them understanding what happened. There's a lot of anger right now. And and that, that quote resonated with me because, you know, people are poor. Their disposable incomes are being eaten away at as if someone were taking it away. And that strikes me as just about the right way to characterize it. Yeah, that's really what it is. If you have a 10% inflation rate, it's a tax that eats up 10% of your incomes, of your wealth, of of everything you've got. Uh, But it's worse than a tax because it also wreaks havoc with the whole pricing system. So we just don't know what to expand, which kind of production works and what what doesn't. And the price system is really what we need to adapt our production to the needs, the demands that, that we've got. But it's not a great mystery. We know exactly why we have this during the pandemic specifically, but actually after the whole global financial crisis, we've had this dramatic expansion of the money supply. And... Um, you have to go back and read Milton Friedman and read Hayek. Um, inflation is always a monetary phenomenon. And it sometimes it takes some time. But if you increase the money supply, eventually you'll run out of uh, value in, in, your, um, in your holdings and make money go uh, not as long anymore. You know, during the pandemic, we increased, we suddenly added one American economy to the global economy. That's what we did. Uh, Ministers of finance and uh, central banks. And when you do that, more money chases as many goods or fewer because we had all those strains in in the um, uh, global supply chains. And in that case, your money will be worth less. So why didn't it happen during the Great Crash when almost just as much money was printed then? Yeah, you have to go back to Milton Friedman again. It's not just the quantity of money. It's also the pace, the speed with which it moves through the economy. And after the global financial crisis, there weren't many um, healthy investments and people weren't interested in uh, consuming that much. So we still didn't get this 
dramatic growth of turnover of, of money in the global economy. You also but had a lot. after the pandemic, and I think partly because of the debts that we uh, built up, there was this sense that now we can spend now we can move on using those resources and not just not just keep them back in our bank accounts or in the stock market because i mean we had lots of inflation but it was in assets in housing and on the stock market. It takes us back to the book you wrote, uh, Financial Fiasco, where you were looking at all the money used to basically print it out and asking if we were basically coming up for another crash. And at the time, I think we, I got you to write the Spectator cover story on this theme. I very much agreed with you that we were creating the conditions. We're borrowing away out of a debt crisis. It had to end badly. But the funny thing is that it didn't, not really. And people like you and me were ended up having to explain to people actually why, why this sort of, we were saying, oh, it's obvious it's going to end in tears. It didn't seem to. So can we <clears throat> do you claim vindication now for what didn't happen? <laughs> yeah. You know, who, in the Austrian economic tradition of Mises and Hayek, we've kind of predicted um, 10 out of the last one recessions, <laughs> <laughs> something like that by now, uh, because you can't time it. You can point to the basic problems and uh, the fact that with too much money, you'll get... Um, bad uh, loans, you'll get bad debts, you'll get uh, inflation in assets. You can keep that going for a long time if you've got a central bank and you can keep on printing money. And you can keep it going for much longer than I expected. Uh, and I, I thought I should get out of the, the Stockholm housing market a long time ago. But it kept on increasing because they could keep on just printing more money and quantitative easing and so on and so on, until eventually they start seeing inflation going up. Because then you have to increase interest rates and then you've got the, the major problems. It ended badly for some of us. I'm a renter. And uh, getting on the housing ladder um, is a near impossibility for a lot of young people. But that makes a serious point. So I can imagine our, our producer... There was inflation. No, no, but, no, 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 but, our, um, but take our, our... Natasha Feroz, our producer here, is looking at this. Now, Natasha, you don't have a house, and I suspect, Natasha, you don't particularly fancy your chances of being able to buy one. And this is the problem. Are, is Natasha here really going to be a, a capitalist if she hasn't got any capital to speak of? I mean, this is a bit of a problem, isn't it? It's okay to be, you know, if you actually do manage to go on the housing ladder, you do feel you've got to buy into this system. I can see why global capitalism sounds a lot better to a house owner like me, but to Natasha, it might sound like a bit of a scam, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'll lend yeah, it's, you. Th- it's that old saying. They they'll they'll be conservative eventually when they have something to conserve. <laughs> and 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 obvi- but obviously it's important to point out this isn't free market capitalism for two reasons. First of all, we've had this incredible inflation in asset prices, which is based on printing money and quantitative easing, which shouldn't have happened. It's really a way of trying to turn. Um, to just turn a profit and loss system into a profit system, whereby you constantly protect everyone who has already got a stake rather than um, than uh, keeping it open for everyone. But the other reason is, of course, it's impossible to build anywhere, not just in London, in Britain, everywhere. It's, it's nimbism and it's not just governments. It's unfortunately, I'm afraid, voter majorities in most places as well. But uh, that's one of the reasons why we have to deregulate building. 
Johan, uh, another point of contention sometimes on this podcast is over former Prime Minister Liz Truss. Uh, and she's mentioned quite a few times in your book. Um, one of my favorite quotes uh, is, sooner or later, you'll always run out of other people's money, as Thatcher put it. And as Liz Truss learned, sooner or later, you'll run out of Thatcher quotes to defend everything to everyone budgets that just don't add up. I'd like to hear from you uh, the definitive analysis, shall we say, Fraser, on Liz Truss's 49-day premiership. <laughs> well, you know, it's very unfortunate that it happened to her. Uh, but it had to happen to someone that we realized that the period of easy money was over. And she was kind of, she wasn't the first of a new sort of growth deregulation agenda or tax cutting agenda. She was the last of the easy money agenda. When you thought you could do anything, you could reduce uh, taxes and increase spending. It's really the modern monetary theory that crashed into a wall at that time. Because suddenly people realized once again that budgets have to make sense. You can't just promise everything to everyone. And when it comes to list trust, it wasn't really taxes. It was the whole spending money on, on protecting people from the increase in, in electricity costs and energy costs. And that's something that people have conveniently forgotten because they, they want lots of handouts like that. But that was the major uh, item in, in that budget. But the, the very assumption that she just didn't care, that it didn't add up the whole budget, that crashed into a wall and that was the end of it. And that you can't defend that by uh, with Thatcher quotes because she was a very serious Prime Minister uh, Thatcher who, who made sure that uh, at the end of the day, mathematics uh, is important. Fraser, are you ready to revise your opinion? Um, no, the thing is, Kate, I, I am not as so against this as you think. I mean, like, when Kate came across that quote she just read out, sooner or later you run out of Thatcher, okay, in quotes, she was so happy she sent me a text message of this, uh, as if to say, take that, Nelson. Um, now, my point was, well, I, I, I argued then, and I still argue, but Liz Trust did have a point to say that if you lower taxes, you can get more growth. That was part of what she did. Now, the problem was that was a relatively small part compared to all of his massive borrowing for subsidizing people's energy bills. And the, the great, and also, as Johan says, she just happened to come along when interest rates world over were going back up and the free money party was coming to an end. Now, the problem there is that many people on the left just, they define this trust by her saying um, tax cuts uh, will we'll make everything go away. And they sort of painted this fake picture of her as somebody who has somehow shown the whole world that it's pointless to try to, to cut taxes. Um, sadly, that's not, you know, she, she showed that if you do have to cut taxes, you need to do it in a careful way. And ideally, don't do it while launching the mother of all borrow and spend programs at the same time. So I will still defend not just Liz Truss, but anybody who says that um, what John, John F. Kennedy described as the paradoxical truth, that lower tax rates can lead to higher tax yields. Not every time, but there are circumstances where that does happen. JFK was right to say that, Liz Truss was right to say that, but that doesn't mean to say that overall Liz Truss was right. The last question I want to put to you both is because I, I think I'm in the room with two very radical optimists. I don't know about you, Natasha. I'm definitely on the more pessimistic side. Oh, you're an optimist too. 
I'm an optimist. All right, I'm in the room with three radical optimists. <laughs> um, and uh, Johan, when, when you read the Capitalist Manifesto, you can't help but be really excited about the world and think that things are only getting better, something that Fraser very often likes to remind us. I think he actually had you uh, write an article for us in 2020 about how it was something like the fourth best year to be alive, surprisingly so. I want to know if you're really as optimistic as the book it's true. I know. I know it's true. I want to know if you, I know it's true. I, I want. I want to know if you're really as optimistic as the book reads, because as great as so many data points are, we are also now living in a world where Russia is invading Ukraine, where China is threatening Taiwan, where even the liberal democracies are taking that protectionist turn. You say in the book, I, I used to argue with the left. Now I'm arguing with the left and the right. I mean, to be a classical liberal is actually to live a very lonely life these days. Um, is there any part of you that's actually quite nervous about what the next 10 years hold? Or is it all optimism all the way? <laughs> well, I, I have to confess that I wake up many mornings thinking that the world is going to the dogs as well. And so that, that happens to me, too. Uh, I'm relieved I'm not alone. <laughs> isn't, your, isn't your book you had written fundamentally out of pessimism? The pessimism being that the facts are not self-evident. The last 20 years is patently not making its own case for liberalism. And in fact, people on your side and mine are losing the argument left, right and center. Quite right. And here's the paradox. You know, we've had, we've had 20 bad years in so many ways. We've had the global financial crisis. We've had the pandemic. We've had endless wars. And then suddenly Putin invades Ukraine. It's been awful. And yet, at the same time, markets have continued to deliver. It's still the 20 best years in human history. Uh, reduction on extreme poverty by 100,000 people every day over those uh, 20 years. We've reduced uh, child mortality by almost half. 4.4 million fewer children died last year than in 2002. So with all those obstacles, with all those problems, all those horrors... Uh, people continue to solve problems because they wake up every morning thinking that, oh, we've got major problems and perhaps the world is going to the dogs. In that case, let's get to work. Let's see what we can do to keep the uh, the, the engine going. Um, so that's why I'm an optimist. We are continuing to solving problems as long as people are free. But, as Fraser points out, that's not self-evident. It's not automatic, the, the, the fact that people will have that freedom to continue doing this. And I think we've had a fundamental misreading of, of the history of the pandemic and of uh, the financial crisis. The lesson that people have learned is that it's dangerous with free trade and we need governments to get back. We need active industrial policy and, and, and things like that to solve problems. And that's why I wrote the books. That's precisely the wrong lesson. What saved us was not one guy from the top. It was hundreds of thousands and millions of people going to work using the local information and their individual ability to uh, continue to keep supply chains functioning, continue to have goods on our shelves and continue to reduce poverty and child labor. Fraser and Johan, thanks for joining me. Thanks for listening. And do go out and find the Capitalist Manifesto, Why the Global Free Market Will Save the World, in your local bookstore.